last Sunday, we began a, a sermon series on resilience. And, um, and I kind of started by, by sharing this. Like, if you've ever been to a funeral, you've probably heard someone give what is called a eulogy. And the very term eulogy comes from the Greek word eulogeo, which means to give thanks for. So whenever give, someone gives a eulogy, basically what they're doing is that they're giving thanks for the ways in which Christ has been evidenced in that person's life. Well, during the month of February, we want to eulogio the voices of black people, the experiences of black people as um, our country sets apart this month, although we know that every single month is Black History Month, that every single month we want to locate the stories and the experiences of people who are black. But this month in particular here at our Southeast Raleigh table, that we want to give God thanks and praise for the ways in which we see um, the goodness of God displayed in people's lives. And so um, last week we, we talked about well, what does it look like to see the resilience of people displayed through the woman with the issue of blood. And this morning I want, to, um, I want us to maybe hold on to the fact that on the other side of resilience, we have to also recognize that people have lived lives of suffering. Uh, to, to get to the other side of something means you had to come from something. To get to the promised land, you have to first remember the story that you were once slaves in Egypt. To know what it is to have uh, milk and honey is to also recognize how God had to journey with you in the wilderness with manna and also with quail. And so I love that in the black church tradition, there is this um, not to normalize suffering in that it just is supposed to be our lot or what we deserve, but that there's recognition that life is hard. And so in our songs, we, we recognize that uh, before we get to the other side, we had to journey through something. This song that I can still hear in my, in the, in my ears and also the ears of my heart, trouble in my way, I've got to cry sometimes. Trouble in my way, I've got to cry sometimes. I can't sleep at night, but that's all right. Jesus, he will fix it after a while. The thing is, yes, we're going to give God thanks and praise for the ways in which Jesus is going to fix it, but you first start off by saying, trouble in my way. How did you feel when you come out the wilderness? How did you feel when you come out the wilderness? Leaning on the Lord. It was not a glorification of suffering, but an acknowledgement that in our waking and in our sleeping, that in our rising, and putting our head on the pillow, sometimes with those 24 hours, life felt brutal. And yet, could also speak to a vision of how God might bring us to the other side. So on the other side of resilience, we have to also recognize that there are also stories of, of suffering. So this morning, we're going to locate ourselves in um, the book of Job. Um, Job is kind of known as the quintessential character of suffering within scripture. But the thing about um, the book of Job is that Job is actually one of the poetic works uh, in scripture. And so suffering is actually couched in beautiful language. And I want to read this quote from Langston Hughes who, um, who talks about suffering and also beauty. This is what Langston Hughes says. He talks about, I was unhappy for a long time and very lonesome living with my grandmother. Um, Lanson Hughes had lived with his grandmother in Kansas. Then it was that books began to happen to me, and I began to believe in nothing but books and the wonderful world in books, where if people suffered, they suffered in beautiful language. 
The book of Job for us as people of faith is kind of how we understand suffering couched in beautiful language. It's not to make suffering that which is beautiful, but to recognize that um, it might uh, draw us into the experience of, of one whose days are filled with great pain. Now, I want you to know this about the book of Job. Um, I'm not going to read this whole book because you have to read the whole book to kind of understand the, the weightiness of this uh, particular um, book of the Bible. But I am going to encourage you when you have some time or margin to read the whole book. It's about 42 chapters to read the whole book of, um, of Job because it's got lots of tone shifts and lots of like unexpected things that, that come um, throughout that particular narrative. The other thing that I wanted to share about the book of Job is that sometimes people like to make the book of Job universal to all of our suffering. And I'm going to invite us, your pastor, not to make Job's experience universal to suffering. And this is why. Suffering is complex. And there are going to be parts of Job's story that you're going to resonate with, and there are going to be parts of Job's story that you're not going to be able to resonate with. And that helps you to not be dismissive of your own pain. Um, that your suffering might have a particularity and a complexity to it that might be different. So when people say, oh yeah, you're suffering like Job, you can say, no, no, no. Maybe my suffering is more like the widow of Nain. Or maybe my suffering is like those who've journeyed for a very long time in a wilderness, but not to make Job into this like, oh my gosh, his story has got to be like my story. So as I talk about suffering, I don't want you to think that I'm universalizing Job's story, but that we might, we might hear something of the ways in which Job gets to the other side as one who suffers. So let me give you an overview of this book. Job is... Um, lives in the land of Uz, and he is known to be blameless and righteous in the sight of God. And um, Job is a man who is very powerful. He's got lots of property. I mean, thousands of camel, lots of sheep. He's got seven sons and three daughters. Well, it says in this story that these heavenly beings, along with Satan or the accuser, go to God and basically say, listen, Job is blameless uh, and, and Job is righteous because Job has nothing wrong going on in his life. But I promise you, if we were to stir up his life story, that uh, Job might actually curse God. And so then um, havoc comes upon uh, Job's camels and Job's flocks and also takes the lives of all of Job's children. But it says that Job doesn't curse God. He lets no ill word fall from his lips. So then um, these heavenly beings go back to God along with Satan or the accuser, as it is said in, uh, in Hebrew scripture. And they say, you know what? It's because we basically destroyed everything around Job's life, but we didn't come for Job. So they decide to afflict Job with basically boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And it says that um, these boils were so painful that Job begins to scrape them with broken um, shards of, of, of pottery and rends himself. And it is uh, at this point um, in the story that I will pick up with our scripture reading in just a second. Now, this is the thing. Um, after Job loses everything in his life, after a very long period of time, it says that everything is restored back to Job twofold, so that all that he had lost, he, he regains. So the story ends with a happy ending. But I want to locate us in that middle place of the story. 
So hear now these words in Job chapter 2, beginning with the 11th verse, and this is after Job's body has been afflicted with boils, and it says this. Now when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from home, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. And when they saw Job from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, we have heard the story of Job. Now help us to really hear the story of Job. That in it we might hear your still small voice speaking to us even in the midst of our life situations. So would you take my words hostage that they may become a living word that we would not only hear them with our ears, but also the ears of our hearts, that your word might take root in our hearts, that they might also be lived out and displayed with our lives. God, may it be so, so that we, your people, might walk out to display that you come with a living word. Speak to us, O God, for your servants are listening. We ask all of this in the strong name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So very on, um, early on in ministry, I realized um, that it was not a helpful exercise to try to explain people's suffering. I learned very early on in ministry that it did not make sense to make people's um, seasons of pain or heartache into a one-size-fits-all. I learned very early on in ministry not to come with one-liners when people were going through the valley of the shadow of death. I learned very early on not to just go for the chicken soup or the soul cliches that many of us have clung to because we don't know what else to say in the midst of a moment. That when I was with a parent whose child had died unexpectedly and someone wanted to say, well, maybe God needed another angel, that I would quiet them and say, no, don't try to explain why an eight-year-old is not sitting with their parent right now. I learned that when um, we are going through seasons that are so complex, that suffering is also complex, and that sometimes suffering feels so inexplainable. When you are going through hard times, when you are going through struggles, when you literally feel like your breathing, waking days are being robbed at every hand, someone trying to explain suffering and your suffering doesn't always sit well or feel really good. I would say that um, suffering is so uncomfortable and it's also inexplainable and that it's a mystery because we serve a God of life. So that whenever anything comes to threaten life, we know that something is at odds with, with the way in which God wants us to live. So it is hard to hear a one-liner or cliche over the very thing that God um, would not want for, for our lives. 
And this is where um, there's both a problem and also some power uh, in Job's uh, story of suffering. Because Job's friends, who recognize that Job's life has been turned upside down, everything that Job owned and everything that Job loved, totally taken away and annihilated. And then now, not only are the things around Job, um, have they been destroyed, but also Job's body is beginning to feel this affliction. So much so that, I mean, he begins to scrape the boils. He is so cognizant of his pain and of his suffering. And Job's friends, three of his friends come that they might provide a little bit of comfort for Job. Now, in the beginning, Job's friends come, and what do they do? They are quiet. It says for seven days and for seven nights, they do not speak a word. One commentator says that this um, intermezzo of silence is one of the most psychological, one of the most powerful psychological forces. Because for someone to just come and sit with you, In your suffering, not trying to talk it away, not trying to explain it away, is their way of actually honoring the power of the suffering in your life. It's to say that I'm going to make myself uncomfortable in this moment as you find yourself also in an uncomfortable moment. Seven days, friends, and seven nights, these friends are like, we will not let our friend be in his suffering alone, but we're also not going to try to explain his suffering. Then... The scripture tells us that Job breaks the silence by beginning to curse his life. So after the seventh night, Job is like, oh my gosh, why? Why was I even born that I might come into a day or a season like this? And somehow, some way, the friends thought, well, this is also our time to start adding our voices. And for about 30 chapters, no lie, 30 chapters in the book of Job, the friends try to explain why Job is going through the situation that he's going through. What started off as power and their silence turns into a problem with their explanations. Uh, because um, one of the friends is like, well, maybe this is divine retribution, Job, because your children, they used to like to party. When you read uh, chapter 2, you'll hear about how the, uh, the, the children of Job like to have a good time. So maybe this is God coming after you because of what your children have done. Have you ever had someone kind of uh, lump that narrative on you because of somebody else's thing? Maybe that's why you're suffering. Uh, th then one of the other friends says, yeah, Job, I know that it says that you are blameless and righteous in, in, in the sight of God. But maybe there is something that you have not uh, dug deep down within your narrative that is holding you back, that you need to repent. Job, what is it, Job, that you don't want to say out loud to us? Maybe if you say that one thing, that will really make you blameless and righteous. In the, in, in the sight of God. Then, then another friend says, you know what, God who is majestic and God who is good, why would God ever want to intervene in the lives of mortals? The very fact that you are human and that you are imperfect, why would God ever want to alleviate you of your pain? Job has nothing. And Job is hurting. And his friends think, maybe this will help. Job, maybe you misunderstood your relationship with God. Now, this is the thing, friends. Um, ultimately, Job's friends are trying to make sense 
of a situation and a circumstance that doesn't make sense. Job, yeah, you're righteous and you're blameless, but this thing has happened to you. There's got to be some, some reason why you're suffering. There just has to be a reason. Now, Brene Brown, who I absolutely love, I call her Brie Brie, because you know we're close like that. But Brene Brown, who's a social psychologist, she talks about um, the fact that as human beings, we have a very hard time living with mystery. That when we're thrust into situations or circumstances that are hard or challenging or, or that we can't say X plus Y equals Z, that uh, what our brains try to do is land on a story. Like we have, to, we have to somehow try to make sense of our situation or our circumstance. The only problem when our brains try to land on a story is that sometimes the story is true and sometimes the story is not true. Like someone who has been exploited who's trying to make sense of their exploitation might say, well, maybe there's something broken in me, that's why. But we know that story's not true. Maybe the true story is that someone could not see you as the beautiful image bearer of God. So here are Job's friends trying to make sense of a situation that doesn't make sense, but they're not helping the situation. Because underlying each of their questions and each of their speeches, as you'll see as you read the book of Job, they are... Um, they're bringing up this underlying notion that sometimes people bring up in the midst of suffering, which is, Job, maybe there's something you've done to deserve your suffering. Maybe there's something you've said to deserve your suffering. Maybe there's something about who you are. That's why you're suffering. One of the most common questions that people will come to me in pastoral moments when they're going through a difficult um, time in life is, what do you think I did to deserve this? What do you think I said to deserve this? Do you think because of that thing I did when I was 16, that's why this thing has happened to me? Do you think because I left that thing unresolved, that's why I'm going through this season of heartache. What did I do to deserve it? Now, you know, um, and we feel uncomfortable in that, this, this idea that maybe we deserve our suffering. But you know, we live in a world that is always trying to um, creep that narrative into us. Like, oh, maybe people are poor because they've done something to, des to deserve that. I, I wonder what, they, what one mistake they made that kind of got them in this situation. Mm. People put themselves here. Underlying Job's friends' speeches to Job, they were basically saying, there is something about you, Job, that probably has brought this about. Now, what's um, more challenging about that is that if the voices of Job's friends weren't adding on to Job's misery by saying, Job, maybe there's something you've done to cause um, this miserable uh, season in your life. You know that we all have an inner voice that sometimes seeks to conspire against us. When no one's pointing the finger at me, I, 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 on January 20th, 1977, when I came into the world, this uh, inner voice will, t will, t will always be accusing me of what I should be doing or what I shouldn't be doing or how I should have said it or how I shouldn't have said it. I mean, most of us live with this inner voice that tells us, mm, always wagging a finger. If nobody else around you makes you feel like maybe you deserve it, 
Sometimes we have this inner voice that will begin to conspire against us that will say, well, maybe I do deserve this. Which means that doubly in your suffering do you suffer. What a difficult narrative to hold on to that maybe there is just something about you that you deserve it. Can you imagine Nelson Mandela on Robben Island thinking, what did I do to deserve this? Someone walking to the lynching tree, what did I do to deserve this? The child who integrates the school but can't sit in the classroom but has to sit in the hallway, what did I do to deserve this? The person who's told you're only three-fifths a human, what did I do? There is something incredibly ugly when we layer on top of suffering this idea that maybe just inherently there is something in us that we deserve to suffer. In Job's story, we can land on the fact that everything was taken away from Job. And in Job's story, we oftentimes love to rejoice when everything was restored for Job. But I think the miracle of this story of Job's life, when his friends come and they, all they do is offer a whole lot of poetic words that make Job feel worse, is that there was this other voice that rose up in Job that, uh, that, that quieted the other voices. Uh, that when, when, uh, when a friend would say to Job, Job, maybe it's because of something that you have left undone, that Job would say, but no, I know my integrity and my complaint is just. Or, or that when um, a, another friend would say, well, Job, maybe this is divine retribution. Uh, maybe it's the fact that God does not really mess with mortals. That, 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 uh, that Job would say, I know my Redeemer lives. You know that song that, is, that, that we sing, I know my Redeemer lives? It comes from actual scripture in Job. When Job was like, I know my Redeemer lives and that the majesty of God is unsearchable. Read the book. Or when folks say to Job, Job, maybe you misunderstood your relationship with this God who created you. That Job says, I know that my integrity is intact. I think the miracle... And Job's story is that Job clung to that other inner voice that says, Job, you know who God is and what God can do for you and who God has made you to be. That I created the heavens and the earth and I breathed into you the breath of life. And when I looked at everything that I created, I said that it was very good. Hear that voice, Job. Hold on to that voice, Job. Trouble in your way. You got to cry sometimes. Trouble in your way, you got to cry sometimes. You can't sleep at night, but that's all right. God will fix it. Hold on to that voice, Job. I don't know what you might find yourself in the midst of. And I don't know who are the people around you who you also watch them in difficult circumstances. But what it would look like for us if we did not layer on top of our own lives and the lives of others, 
that somehow we deserve to suffer. So what are the voices that you're listening to? I'm going to invite our worship team to come back, and I'm actually going to lead us in a reflection. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. And if you would feel so inclined that you would place your hands in your lap. <laughs> and as you ground yourself, I want to just simply ask you these, these questions. What are you telling yourself that may not be true? Do you speak over your own life a narrative that you deserve your suffering? Have you made your one mistake or your two mistakes, or your three mistakes, or your multiple mistakes. The thesis of your life story. That you've become so comfortable with self-flogging. Or, or you believing that you deserve to live in a perpetual state of pain. Might you allow that voice to be drowned out by the voice of the Most High God who reminds you that you are loved. Do you come to this moment as an act of contrition? Because maybe you have in passive or in active ways told people that they deserve what they've gotten. Have you held on to beliefs that some people deserve suffering more than others? Or have you rejoiced when you've seen others in pain? Might you ask God to forgive you for the times when we've seeing other people suffering as somehow having power over that God might free us are there spaces in your life where maybe you just need to be quiet that solidarity and comfort looks like not trying to explain or give a qu quick quip or one-liner, but that maybe God is just calling you to be. Or maybe you sit on the other side 
or you've gone or you are going through a difficult circumstance or you're facing a difficult situation and people knowingly or unknowingly have hurt you with their words or their gestures thinking that they can wrap up your suffering with a nice bow. Might we extend grace in those moments? Have you downplayed the suffering of others? And when people share their experiences, because it's so hard to comprehend, you just automatically assume, well, then maybe it can't be true. How might you make space to say, even though I may not understand, I am here? Or maybe you've downplayed the suffering in your own life. So quick to say, well, but somebody else is going through that you forget that you might also be going through. To know that God does not create caveats for us, but that God holds all of us. Gracious God, on the other side of resilience, we recognize that there is suffering. And that on the other side of suffering, for us, there might be resilience, but there's also you. And so God, whether we are going through or coming out, we pray, oh Lord, that you and your still small voice might be the voice that we hear most clearly, that you are a God who will not leave us or forsake us, and that you are a God who is with us. May it be so, oh God. Amen.